0: this is jason albert and you are listening to nordic nation from faster skier in this episode we touch base with ollie burris who works at the Crassberry outdoor center and is really involved with all things nordic there We wanted to take a deep dive with Ollie to discuss how their new waxing policy that was written last fall played out over this winter. Specifically, and really somewhat controversial at the time, but probably less so now, was the fact that the Craftsbury Outdoor Center dictated that they would not allow fluoros or fluoro wax to be applied within their indoor waxing facility. Additionally, they recommended that waxes with fluoros not be used at all out on their trails. Needless to say, during the Super Tour events at Crassberry this winter, that policy was kind of pushed aside to accommodate uh, Super Tour waxing policies. In any event, we touched base with Ollie last month to get his thoughts on where Craftsbury stands at the moment. Okay, here's Ollie. I work
1: at the Craftsbury Outdoor Center in a variety of roles. Um, I do some coaching. I'm a wax tech. I'm the race director here for the, all of, not all of, for the majority of the winter events, primarily the higher level Nordic events. And then I handle landowner relations for our nordic center so i'm the most of the time i am the go-between for the the center and the 103 private landowners um who make up you know the who are the owners of our trail network and then i also do mountain bike stuff but that's that's irrelevant and so in that i mean waxing comes into what i you know waxing intersects my line of work in a lot of different ways um you know i'm I'm a technician. I wax for our juniors. I wax for our uh, Green Racing Project athletes. I've served as a technician for the New England team a couple times. Um, And so I use a lot of wax. And then as a race director, you know, I I put on races where waxing can be, you know, a, a very major part of the equation. And then as a landowner coordinator, I am ultimately responsible for you know the the people that allow it graciously allow us to groom trails on their land um waxing has not really come up in that role but would be surprised if it does at some point um luckily i think nordic skiing is <laughs> this is one of the great times when nordic skiing is very much off the radar for most people and so when they hear about um PFAS in their water in Southern Vermont and in all other places like Nordic waxing doesn't necessarily come to mind.
0: Okay. Can you just describe a little bit about what exactly was the waxing policy as it related to fluoros this winter at the outdoor center?
1: The policy wound up being that we didn't want anyone to use fluoros in our wax room period in our pub. We have a public wax room that was built in, I want to say 20, maybe 2013 or 2014. Uh, it's in the basement of our fitness center, which is right next to our ski shop. And it's got, you know, a dozen sort of carols where you can wax with forms and all that sort of stuff. And it's shared air. Like there's a, there's a vent fan and there's a window and there's a door, but that's it. And then there's actually a, an interior door that opens into uh, where we have our first aid for all of our races um, in addition to food storage and a bunch of other stuff. So what we ha- decided to do was we said, you can't use fluoros in there. Um, the burning part, like the language there, was around the acknowledgement that probably, you know, exposing... I'll preface this right away in that, like, I understand a lot of the the emotional side of this. I understand a lot of the colloquial side of this. I don't think that I'm the most well-versed in the science side of floral use and so and i've I've tried to stay out of that like i don't really think that it makes a difference in how i feel about the the use the prevalence of this product so i might say some things that maybe aren't totally scientifically accurate but i think it's fair to say that like burning floral so burning powders burning blocks burning liquids whatever exposing them to high melt point changing the the carrying agent for those florals, right, or the, the way that their phase changes and what have you, that's generally assumed to be one of the more dangerous things that you can do So um, to human health. So we figured, all right, let's just get those right out of the way. Let's not burn stuff. Uh, then what we decided was um, we don't, so we didn't want to have any, use of fluoros in our wax room we also asked that um, people don't use fluoros day to day on when skiing at the outdoor center uh, so you know just if you're gonna come and ski it was our request of you that you use non-fluorinated paraffins you're not putting on um, waxes that contain fluorocarbons and that was sort of a an, like we figured that was a fair ask because, You don't really need it like we understand that around race events and that sort of stuff like testing happens and those are more specific but if you're just going out for a regular ski like you could use an nf wax and it'll be fine so yeah so the line the line that we wrote was the use of glide wax containing fluorocarbons will not be permitted in our public wax room at any time This includes perfluorinated top coats and paraffins containing fluorocarbons, so colloquially LF and HF products. We also, you know, and above that, in the the sentence immediately preceding that one, it said, we see no need for skiers to wax with fluorocarbons for day-to-day skiing at the outdoor center. Then we moved into er, that that, um, location-specific, like, we don't think you need to use them here for day-to-day skiing. We do not want you to use them in the public space. And the idea there was, like, if someone chooses to, to burn fluoros, then they are making a choice that affects everybody around them. So if you've got a bunch of teams in that public wax room, and this happened at nationals last year, and I just didn't really think it through because it's something that happens at ski races all over the world, that there were a bunch... Like, I provided an opportunity for co- for teams to rent spa- private space for waxing. That's something that a lot of clubs have moved in a direction of with trailers, and then at U.S. nationals, a lot of teams rent, you know... Um, you know, rent wax trailers and, or rent. We have some permanent cabins. We have four cabins that you can rent that are small enough for, you know, one team. And then last year we augmented that with another dozen trailers plus whatever the, the local colleges and, and clubs brought as their tow-behind trailers. But there were a bunch of teams that were like, yeah, we're just going to send it in the public wax room. And if one person in that public wax room decided to burn, to, to burn fluoros, then that air was immediately, poof, that, that air was contaminated and everyone else in that wax room had to decide what they were going to do about it. And I don't know if you've ever put on a respirator. They're not crazy, but they're not comfortable. It's really hard. It, I mean, it's tough to communicate. They get hot. You get, it's, they're just not really nice. And, and it's, they're also, they're ironically, a constant reminder that what you're doing is probably dangerous. You know, and that's not, yeah. So, so we said, that room is out doesn't matter if we're, we know we're hosting a super tour this year. It doesn't matter. If you want to use that room for scraping skis, if you want to use that room for putting kick wax on, fine. But if you want to put anything with fluoro on, you got to do it somewhere else. So at the super tour this year, there were some clubs that just posted up outside and were, you know, burning, their, you know, ironing and wax outside. And that's, you know, there's, there's, who knows if that's better. I think that that's on, in some ways better from a, Public health standpoint, you know who knows. They're still we're still using that stuff. They're still still getting out into the world. But you know you're not infecting the guy. You know you're not contaminating the air of the guy next to you who's not at that step in the process. And I was just when I was out in the Midwest, like we just waxed in a big garage, and like I was constantly head on a swivel looking around to see if anybody was, you know, if there was that telltale crystal smoke coming up from an iron because then I'd have to put my radi- my respirator on because I don't want to be you know, inadvertently exposed to that stuff. And then that gets tiresome because what do you do? Like take your respirator off, hold your breath, run to the door, go test skis, come back in. It's, it's crazy. So I feel bad saying it's crazy because my sister would get mad at me if I said that. It's, I don't think it's an acceptable standard uh, to, you know, sort of hold up. as I, I don't think it's an acceptable standard. Like, I, and, and so we didn't want to make people make that decision on their own, so we just made it for them.
0: So, what was the testing like for you folks at Crassberry this winter? I mean, you guys have a very high tech uh, wax support system. So, what did that look like for you folks? And, you know, whether it was fluorinated product or non fluorinated product. And what was the overall response to the policy this past winter? Uh, what type of feedback did you get?
1: Um, well, the people who test up here are, you know, we do testing when we're around, like the Green Racing Project uh, test skis, but you can, you know, if you're testing skis, you can test skis with any wax. Yeah, there's, you know, sometimes it's more... F- we all know it's more fun in most conditions to ski on faster skis. But you know, Zach Caldwell comes up and tests all the time. He just started testing non-fluorinated products, and so he, would, he did a bunch of testing when he was up there of non-fluorinated stuff. Um, prior to the Super Tour... We understood that, you know, this is a, a race series in which these products are permitted, and we figured, realistically, how many teams were actually going to be here more than two or three days out testing, so we just sort of didn't really pay attention to it. In terms of response in general, it was surprisingly positive. I was I was very nervous when we wrote the policy, and the first time we rolled it out, uh, <laughs> we, we, uh, we actually ran into an issue where it was posted. We were migrating our website this fall, and so it wound up being post- posted in two places, and I was editing one place but not the other. So that was an internal mistake that we made. So there was two. The, it looked like the outdoor center was saying two different things, some of which were contradictory, and that was a bummer. But once we got that squared away, you know, the people who were reading the website and were emailing me about it or emailing whomever were generally pretty positive. There was one interaction that I had where um, an anonymous email uh, filled out a form on the website and called me or called us hypocrites and went off on a you know whataboutism about whether you know we are also going to stop cooking meat because uh, contributing to the uh, industrial farming of beef adds. Uh, cow flatulence has an effect on the ozone layer and so clearly you know whatever and, and it, it, was, it was very very clearly not a good faith argument I <laughs> couldn't help myself and I responded and there was a little bit of back and forth but I could tell that the person on the other end of the emails who never signed the emails or anything like that um, didn't really have any interest in actually engaging in a legitimate argument and my my general thought was just to lay out what I think the to lay out our, our, both my personal rationale for the decisions and then our, our larger um, organizational decision-making process. And other than that, I, it was really positive. There are a lot of people who just said, you know, there are a lot of questions. Okay, can I use this? Okay, can I use that? And, but nobody came at it with, from an adversarial. Very few people came at it adversarially, and then I don't think there was anyone. There was no one who said, oh, I'm just going to do this anyway. Yeah, you know, the the response was great, and I was really heartened by that. And I had been, admittedly, really nervous. Um, I talked to some Canadians who you know, they they did this at a national level this year. They have a, they have a, a list of for everything that's what they consider tier two or below. So for us, it would be like NRL like races, I think. Um, anything that's not sanctioned by FIS, basically, in Canada has it there's an acceptable list of waxes that you're allowed to use, and. I, I understand from some of my um, contacts in Canada that there was a conference call of all of the club coaches, um, and that's, that's an, another aside, that like, oh, they're organized enough that they can get all their coaches on a conference call. That's awesome. I'd love to see that in the United States. Uh, but there's one coach who just said, look, if I think that anybody else is violating this policy, I'm going to violate this policy too. Um, the fact that there's no testing is ridiculous and like I'm not going to if I think that someone else is going to do it I'm going to do it and it basically was your classic like arms race brinksmanship that did us such a you know we did so well by in the in the cold war that led to nuclear proliferation it's like you know so there's that and that was con- that was a topic of conversation in November when I was talking to these Canadians and then I don't ever heard about it again uh, admittedly I wasn't going out and looking for it but I didn't hear about it there. I didn't hear about it leading up to our marathon. Um, I didn't hear about it at any of the Eastern Cups. I didn't hear about it at any high school race in Vermont. We adopted, at, in our public high schools, a non-fluorinated wax policy. Um, in the Eastern Cups, we modified the New England-based Eastern Cups. We modified what was permissible for waxing, so we basically said, you can use fluorinated wax products, but you can't iron anything. So You can hand cork. You can roto cork, uh, but you can't iron any fluoros. And initially, it was, you can't iron fluoros at the venue. And we we're like, well, that's, that doesn't help. We don't want people ironing fluoros in their garage. We don't want ironing fluoros in some rental garage. We just don't want it done. Like, we think that we can scale down the proliferation of these products. And I just, I haven't heard any horror stories. Like, I watched at our marathon. It wasn't exactly a race where Floros really would have made the difference. But, like, Freeman went out there and won, you know? And he could probably win anyway. And if, if there were people cheating, like, fine. They're the ones who have to live with themselves at the end of the day. And I think this community, like, I've been so impressed with the way that the New England ski community has been pretty positive about this. Now, we're getting into the time of year where we're about to send kids out to the U16 festival, which is down in southern Vermont, and they have a, a paraffin-only policy. So you can use high fluorinated paraffins, and I helped a couple of our kids the other day pick out some waxes that they could use, and I found them the highest fluorinated content paraffin that I could find, and that's that. Had we put, you know, had we burned powder into those skis, brushed them up, and and sent the kids on their way, like, we could have done that, and nobody would have known, but that's not the spirit of the competition, and it is going to be interesting to see if, you know, if anything comes of, like, oh, I I heard so-and-so was was using fluoros in in that race, and, um, but the other case test here is the EISA has been doing this for, like, five years, and they're continually changing their policy and tightening up their policy, and I've not heard a word about it. Like, are there are two races sort of in the, in the zeitgeist, so to speak, where there's questions about maybe did Floros come into play in these events. But even then, it's like it's all scuttlebutt and nobody's really making that much about it. And it, it has not come to be a major issue. And I think at the end of the day, everybody's okay everyone feels pretty good about the decision and they feel pretty good about their ability to continue to optimize you know, ski performance in other ways on race day and focus more on optimizing athletic performance. And I, don't, I will say, I don't think that this policy, I don't agree with people who say that it's going to give us more opportunities to coach kids on race day. I think if you are, if your goal is to create the fastest skis on a given day, you can work nonstop to make, like, right up until the gun goes off trying to op- optimize every little thing that you do. And I'm perfectly content with that because I think that ulti- like, my hope is that it will make things maybe a little bit healthier, a little bit safer, maybe in some ways a little bit cheaper. I, don't really, I haven't really thought that through, but I, just, I feel better about people knowing that they're not out there trying to burn fluoros without a mask or, you know, the number of times that I've rubbed pure floral liquid in with my fingers without a glove, like, I know now how dumb that is, but I was looking at a product the other day. I can't remember who it's from, but it says, like, it literally says on the product, like, spray onto base and spread with finger. It doesn't say spread with a gloved finger. It says spread with, you know, and and this is this is where, like, what i've come to realize this year because it hasn't been an issue really for in in my world of putting on these races like i haven't really had to think about it that much we made a policy i think people have adhered to the policy we've moved on to some other stuff that we want to do you know we're trying to have the best experience for all those racers like it's made me realize how derelict our national governing bodies were in allowing this sort of like the prevalence of these unhealthy behaviors like it blows my mind that the United States doesn't require everybody to wear a respirator at base when they're, they're.
0: you were also involved with some of the decision-making, you know, across new England. So there are NENSA events, there are ESA events, uh, lots of different constituencies and stakeholders in you know a, a geographic re- region that has a long history of cross-country skiing, but also uh, lots of different states and entities that are in relatively close proximity to one another. So, you know, I'm kind of curious what your experience was, you know, this fall and this past winter, uh, navigating those new policies, deriving those policies, and then seeing them implemented.
1: Uh, again, I've I've been. I've had a really great experience with it. Like we've, I've sat down, I've been in three different decision-making processes around this. I, I was involved in making, you know, crafting our policy here at the outdoor center. I was involved in crafting the policy for the Vermont Pub, uh, principals association, which is our public high school. Um, I was involved in crafting the NENSA policies. And what, and it, it, we put the work in, through those, that process to make sure that what, what our final product was, um, that the bottom line with our final product was that it had to be coherent. And I think one of the things that I am learning and that your, your story illustrates to me, and this is something that I see a lot, is there are a lot of people involved in this sport who, are, who have a, a cursory knowledge of things that they wind up using a lot. And so, like, they have a cursory knowledge of what actually goes into waxing. But so when they say pure fluoro, you know, who knows what somebody's talking about? So you have to be really, really, really clear and really break things down. So I, you know, you see in our Craftsbury policy that we published that we talk about, you know, what we specifically mean. So the different levels of fluorination in a paraffin versus the perfluorinated top coats and like trying to use as much universal language and then bring it back to a place where it's like, this is what we mean, this is what you should be doing. Um, if you I actually have I have a standard paragraph that I put on all of the registration pages for our non fluorinated events. So we've hosted a bunch of races here in Craftsbury that are not super tours and are not you know, the ones that we are the the host and organizer, we have language that we put out about what you're allowed to use for wax. Um, I think the EISA has had a, a long uh, conversation about, you know, a long and ongoing conversation about what their various rules mean. Like, they, they don't allow on, I think it's skate days, you're allowed to top coat skis, but you're not allowed to iron anything onto the skis. Some coaches think that means you cannot use powders, but you can put a powder on without ironing it. And so it's just, that's the same thing that you probably were experiencing in Oregon where, like, you've got a lot of coaches who just don't communicate, who who aren't, sorry, don't communicate is maybe not fair, who don't have the same shared understanding of how to talk about these products and what the products actually are. And then, whether for um, ignorance, ego, or ill will, they don't ask questions. And so I think that's one of the dangers there is that if you have a policy that isn't really well fleshed out, if you haven't really critically analyzed it to see where the holes in it are, then you might have somebody who says, oh, I don't think that my thing falls into that. And that they might not ask a question because they think they're right. They're afraid to ask questions, which, I mean, face it, that happens a lot in our sport. Like, we have a lot of people with big egos and maybe not a ton of knowledge who, are, who cannot find the confidence to ask questions about things that they feel like they should know that they don't know and and then you have some people who I think are could potentially abuse a policy because there are holes in it and so what we what we came to realize is like we have to be super explicit with what we want to do one of the things that we proposed with the um the Vermont High School Coaches Association, was we, we had a whole thing where we were like, okay, this is what we're going to do. You, we're going to have shared waxing, and you're going to clean your skis like this, and you're going to do that. And then we were like, eh, we don't need to do it all together. We just need to give very explicit steps about what is acceptable with a pair of skis coming to a Vermont, you know, state race um, from, let's say, an athlete who had been racing a bunch of Eastern Cubs. And they gave a really great, they were like, you need to wipe them with a glide cleaner, and then you need to put at least two layers of a non fluorinated wax in 2 your skis before you show up to the start. Who knows if that makes any difference? Like, right? Like, who knows? But at least it's something. That everybody is doing the same thing. Sport is. I mean, sport is a, is so many beautiful things. But sport is also a long-standing tradition of gamesmanship and trying to find the gray areas in guidelines. It's why people are abusing inhalers. It's why, you know, who did, whatever it is. It's like there are stories about freaking phil jackson loosening the rims on on the visitors basketball courts when they had home games for the lakers like people have been doing that for years and that like, we're never going to get around that but what we need to do is be clear and concise and coherent and one of the things that i think is really interesting that comes to play with this is i have a lot of interaction with a lot of people at a ton of different levels in the sport and it's awesome i love it like i i get emails from citizen skiers about races i get emails from you know, junior parents kids you know middle school and, and elementary school aged you know parents of that age skiers that age super tour racers club coaches like visiting you know international coaches from all sorts of levels and so I can I have a lot of exposure to the different ways that people think about skiing and talk about skiing and I think that one of the things that is really important as we move forward in this is recognizing that like some of the people who put hundred percent of their time into skiing aren't going to be able to write the best. Um, they're not going to be able to craft the messaging the way that they want to because they're going to talk about as though everybody knows it. And so you need to find people who are really good copy editors. You need to pass it by people who don't know as much as you, but who are willing to say, I have no idea what this means. And we have that at the Outdoor Center, which is awesome. Like, Dick and Judy are avid, avid ski fans, and they are promoters of this sport possibly better than any other couple in the United States. But they don't know the same you know, they don't talk about wax the way that I do. They don't talk about racing the way that I do. And so when I write something down and they don't understand it, it's, that's great because that means that most people probably aren't going to want to understand what I say. And I'm totally, I understand that. But I think there are a lot of coaches who, you know, coaches, officials, whatever, who write these things down and then don't really think about like, not everybody gets this. So the messaging is, it comes back to messaging and language and like shared definitions of things. And that could be, you know, regionally, there are ways that we talk about stuff. But at some point, it, it gets back to me for, to who is the who's the national guiding force in this sport? It's US ski and snowboard. And they have been silent, conspicuously silent about this issue to the point where I actually think that they have really, they've been derelict in their responsibility for both keeping their members safe and guiding the sport in the United States. Like the fact that there has been no conversation about this, not a peep, is appalling to me as these conversations start to happen at all these different regional levels. and we're, We'll see next year. Who knows if this is going to do what they're going to do, but Ski and Snowboard needs to step up and start talking and saying, if you're going to do this, this is how this is going to work because otherwise, like a race in the Pacific Northwest might get national ranking list points that are completely unequivalent to a race in, in, in the East because you've got you don't have strong centralized leadership.
0: You know, what specifically are you guys doing at Crassberry and specifically we're, you know, talking about like say the elite level, you have lots of elite level cross country skiers and biathletes that are based out of there. And, you know, if they're racing domestically or you have a wax tech that is traveling to Europe um, with a specific group of Crassberry athletes, you know what are you doing to buttress your testing and your wax know-how when it comes to using you know non-fluorinated products and other strategies for that matter?
1: Yeah. Oh, we've got every we've got every non-fluorinated product we can get our hands on, and we're testing them a fair bit. Actually, um, we've we're thinking about you know, we're going to wind up thinking about other things differently. We're going to wind up thinking about hand structure differently, and we're gonna what's going to change is is skis are going to be really important. And I'm, I'm really scared from a regional race and just like sport promoter position about what that might do to the accessibility of our sport. Um, I do think that there is a lot of truth to the idea that like a good wax job can bring a mediocre pair of skis into play for an athlete who might not be able to afford four or five different pairs of skis. And so I think one of the things that I hope is going to happen is that we are going to start a conversation about what the acceptable level of um, equipment is at each different level in the pipeline. And I think looking at like, you know, skiing in the U.S. has come, come a really long way in the last 10 to 15 years. We've really become a lot more professionalized. You can see that with the results that are coming out of Germany right now, with the results that are coming out of the World Cup. It, it's awesome. It's such a fun and exciting time to be a part of this sport. But I also think that it means we can now go back and say, okay, we've hit, we've, we've arrived at the international level. So let's go back and see what we can do to continue that process. And where can we smooth out some of the bumps in the pipeline, for instance? And I think one of those is going to be that we have, we have a really economically inaccessible sport and we are in a, we're in a partnership with Alpine, which is a really economically inaccessible sport. And we don't want to wind up like that because it's leaving huge, Swaths of potentially awesome skiers who could learn and grow and benefit from everything we've created in the, this country from our ski community, which I think everyone's generally going to say is really positive. We've got a few bad apples out there, but like it's it's a place where I want to raise my child. You know, it's a place where I've decided to make my living. And if we leave that behind because we say that well, you know, you we can't use Floros anymore, but now the best way to have good skis is to have six pairs of skis. It's not going to look good. And I, I really, I'm scared of that. And I want to get out front and start to have those hard conversations because I think we do have a lot of people, are really, really smart, motivated, energetic people who can start to craft positive policy around that. But we need to do it. And we need to do it sooner rather than later because being reactive is going to be, could be crippling. Um, so I think I see that. But on the elite racing side of things, stuff's going to change. But the thing that's always going to stay the same is the fastest athletes and the most well-prepared athletes are going to be good. And the, the technicians and coaches who are willing to work the hardest in pursuing marginal gains that are within the letter of the rules are going to be the ones who do well. And that's always been the case. If you're lazy on race day about anything, if you're an athlete or a coach, like, it's probably not going to work out so well for you. So the people who are willing to, to you know, innovate and learn and work hard are still going to do well.
0: Okay. Well, it was nice uh, catching up with you and thanks for your time, Ollie. Appreciate it. All right. Keep it real, man. Bye. Thanks for listening.